marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. In the time that we have launched this podcast, we've talked to a pro-legalization advocate, a state cannabis regulator, a congressman, a local medical professional, a global cannabis economist, and a social activist for economic justice. Today, we talk to someone who advocates against the legalization of cannabis and fought against the passage of Measure 91 back in 2014 as the director of Oregon's chapter of Smart Approaches to Marijuana. He says the science doesn't support the claim and the potential for harm is still too great. Back in 2014, 47% of voters agreed with him. Today, we look at the case against the legalization of cannabis. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin 6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Randy Philbrick is the founder of Portland for Positive Impact a local grassroots organization whose founding mission is to hold city leaders accountable for the rise in violent crime. But back in 2014, Randy was one of the local leaders campaigning against Measure 91 in Oregon. Randy, thank you for joining us today. What led you to becoming an advocate against the legalization of recreational cannabis? I was actually recruited during the No on 91 campaign, I was very vocal on their Facebook page when they would post something and somebody would put pro-marijuana, we'll just say rhetoric, or just flat out propaganda or lies, I would go on there and I would basically express my view, what, what my opinion was. And if it was something of a health nature, I would put what the science says, because I've actually been reviewing the science into marijuana since it originally went on the ballot in 2012 and failed. So I wanted to get the science side because growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very marijuana friendly. I had friends, I'd go over to their house and you know their parents would be smoking a bong in their living room while we're in the bedroom playing. So it's not a big deal for me. I grew up around it. I know it. I know people that have done it and gone down that path. 
I wanted to know the science behind it, what it did to your body, what it did to your brain, what is in the drug. And so I was very vocal and I would put the science down to back up my point when I talk on there. And when the initiative failed, I actually got a private message from the person that was running the campaign and they do a drug prevention organization. They just started a new one in Redmond and they wanted me to be on the advisory committee that they were just starting up. And I was like, sure, no problem. I have a medical background history. And then what I've been dealing with, with the science side, I was like, sure, no problem. And then a little bit down the road, she called me again and she said, I have somebody who is looking to expand their national organization into Oregon and they want somebody to join and I think you'd be good for it. And I was like, so what is this? And she said it was smart approaches to marijuana. They are an anti-legalization group, but they also support decriminalization. And what they're looking for is somebody who can take the punches because a lot of people that support legal marijuana, they're ruthless. Um, when before the Measure 91 campaign started, the group that was doing the No on 91 had a statewide tour of a marijuana prevention program that they were doing, had nothing to do with Measure 91. And Congressman Blumenauer and Russ Belleville, I don't know if you're familiar with him, they actually followed this tour and at every stop would harass them to the point where, you know, as a bunch of women that were doing this, they were crying. They were harassing them so bad that they had to stop the tour. And whenever I talk with them about this today, it just brings them to tears. It was so bad. She basically said, they want somebody that can handle that. And I did. For a good year, I took the beatings, you know, and I went toe-to-toe with Congressman Blumenauer via Twitter because he won't reply to my emails. I went toe-to-toe with Russ Belleville a lot on social media. He even wanted me to debate him on, you know, his little podcast that he was doing, but I just didn't see the point in it because a lot of people listen to his podcasts are on his side and what I had to say wouldn't influence them at all. So that's basically how I got into it. I was recruited based on my knowledge of, you know, the marijuana science behind the drug. So you say you grew up in a neighborhood that was very pro-marijuana. You grew up in and around it. Was there a defining moment that had you take a deeper, more critical look at cannabis? You know, growing up in the area, you hear reefer madness, reefer madness. Oh, that's not right. That's just reefer madness. I wanted to know what was reefer madness and what was truth. And especially when I started getting into the medical field, I wanted to know. But one thing that really sticks out in my memory even today is in my late teens, I used to run around with a group of guys. There was five of us and we would go park to park playing basketball every day, just pick up games against these people. And it was kind of cool because we'd even sit in the car. They had the two guards in the front, the two forwards in the back. And there was me in the, in the middle of the, you know, so we sat in the car like it was our little setup. And one of the guys started hanging out with this kid and, you know, he started smoking weed and eventually he just disappeared. He wasn't hanging out with us. He always wanted to hang out with the guy that he was smoking weed with, getting high, because that's all he cared about. So I've seen that path. People say, oh, well, it's not addictive. It's not, it doesn't consume your life. I've seen that happen personally. I've seen it consume somebody's life. So I wanted to know the science behind the drug. Why does it make somebody do that? Is it addictive? Will it take you down this path? Or, you know, it's just interesting to me, the science behind it. What do you believe are the critical issues and negative impacts that cannabis legalization brings with it? I'm going to start at the very top. 
the advisory board for the OLCC, everybody on that committee, I have been able to track to having their hands in the cookie jar. Everyone on that committee benefits from legalization, whether it be dispensary owners or people who fund dispensaries or what it may be. Everybody on that board benefits from legalization. Yeah, I think there's like two doctors. Why they would support it, I don't know. The medical field is kind of split because you have conflicting science. You know, you have some studies that say, well, it's beneficial here. You know, certain components like THC has been found to be effective for pain management. CBD has been found to be effective for seizures with, you know, like Javits syndrome or epilepsy or, you know, stuff like that. Individual components. But we have some that are trying to push the, you know, we'll get to the medical part later. So everybody on that board, like I was saying, has some kind of benefit. So that is my big issue there. They're not getting people with drug policy background or anything else like that. Drug prevention. I don't agree with that committee 1%. I've tried to get on that committee and they won't reply to my applications for it. Now let's go to the societal impact. Yes, it will increase DUIs. As we have seen, I'm not trying to jump on the wall. You know, everybody's impaired. Of course, we're going to see a rise because now we're looking at it. But it is out there. People are impaired. Whether you think it, it, it impairs your ability to drive or not, it does. And then we're also seeing other social impacts. I want to say, what was it? Four or five years ago, we had a rash of BHL explosions, butane hash oil explosions. I don't have the numbers right on me right now, but there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 21 within a year or two, 18 months or something like that. $9 million in initial emergency room visits was paid out for those 21 butane hash oil explosions. $9 million and about 75 to 80% of that was paid by Oregon Health Plan or Medicare or Medicaid. So that's another thing is we're having those social costs that are starting to add up already that people say, oh, well, that's not going to happen. Every substance has cost to it, whether it's alcohol, whether it's tobacco, whether it's meth or whatever, there's going to be a social cost to it if you legalize it and if you try to normalize it. Teens, their big thing was Kids aren't going to be able to get a hold of it because it's going to be licensed marijuana dispensaries where they ask for ID. Okay, well, when you're a teenager, did you ever go up to somebody who was over 21? Hey, can you buy me beer? It's the same thing. It's going to happen. But then again, they don't have to go that route because with Measure 91, you have the dispensaries, but you also have home grow. So now anybody can grow four plants at their home as long as it's out of the view of the public. So now you have people that are growing it at home, which is a heck of a lot easier than brewing beer in your bathtub or however else you do it. So there's always an avenue for kids to get it. I saw a documentary on YouTube about six months after legalization took effect, and it was a bunch of kids from Cleveland High School. One of them said that getting weed was easier than getting water. Legalization does that. It puts more product on the streets or more availability for kids to get. And that's what I don't want because of the science that shows what happens when teens use the drug, you know, because their brains are developing until they're 25, 28 years old. And when you add a substance that affects your brain, it could actually alter how your brain grows or develops. So that is another thing that I really don't like because we haven't seen that rise. I'm going to say that now. There hasn't been a significant rise in teen use, but it didn't decline like Yes on 91 said it would. We're sitting right around 10% according to the, uh, the NSDES survey, the National Survey on Drug. I don't remember what, it's, <laughs> what it is, but it's uh, a national survey that they do every two years. So with that survey, we're still sitting right at about 10% for teen use. 
and even the monitoring in the future survey is showing kind of holding steady. There was a good rise, I want to say 2019 for Oregon. Uh, it did show a significant rise. Oregon Health Authorities Healthy Teen Survey. I need to get with them because I don't like how they're doing it. Post-legalization, they took a lot of stuff out of it, but their teen use for the, the schools that they do is sitting pretty much right about the same as it was for legalization. So we're not seeing that rise, but we're also not seeing a, a decline. Beyond the availability, do you also believe there's a danger, especially when it comes to teen use, that the combination of access and normalization will lead to higher teen usage and experimentation? Yeah, and the problem is, is like I said, with their developing brain, is legalization, they're playing it off as free the weed. You know, oh, it's just a joint. It's just a bong hit. Well, that, that's not what legalization is about. You look at even 20 years ago, the average potency that was tested by the U.S. government of confiscated marijuana, the average potency for THC was 5%. You're looking at strains in dispensaries right now, just a flower that are upwards of 30 to 35% THC. Now you're looking at expanded inventory that are being sold of extracts and edibles and different types of things. Oregon allows product to have up to 99.9% THC. A lot of people aren't familiar with what's that, what's the big deal? Well, THC is a neurotoxin. And the definition of a neurotoxin is a substance that can alter normal brain use or normal brain function and also brain growth. So THC can do that. Now you're putting product on the street that kids can get a hold of. They can just, pardon the pun, blow their mind. It's not safe. It's not, you know, the Woodstock weed that we had back in the 60s back then was still about 3% THC. So it's not a benign drug like it used to be. And we're pushing these high potency product on our kids these days. Now that it has been legal for over seven years, has Oregon done anything properly with the implementation of the adult cannabis program, in your opinion? One, one thing. A lot of states post-legalization when it came to DUIs went on a blood test. So a lot of them put, this is a really an arbitrary number. There's no science behind it. They put five nanograms per milligram of metabolized THC in your blood. Now we are seeing a trend that the higher the amount of THC, you're probably gonna be impaired, but we still don't have the science behind it right now to back that up. What Oregon does is they take a science-based approach and they have drug recognition officers that are with Oregon State Police, has a good portion of them, but they do also do the training for it. You know, Portland Police, Tiger Police, all these other police departments have trained DREs that actually go out and conduct a field sobriety test and look for signs of impairment that are science-based. That is what Oregon did right, because THC can stay in your system for, depending on how much you use, 30 days, maybe a little less, maybe a little longer doesn't mean you're impaired. We need to make sure that the drivers that are getting DUIs are actually impaired. And that's one thing that Oregon did right. Randy, do you support a medicinal cannabis program? No, I support research into finding out if it is medicinal. We have been having a lot of studies lately that are looking into individual components, like I've said before, like the THC or the CBD, and even the new one that University of Oregon did. I don't remember the exact ones, but there are two components from hemp that they said could prevent COVID-19. I'm not sold on the THC being medicinal because 
We still don't know a lot about it, what it can do. There are currently five medications that are approved. I believe three are FDA approved, two are approved over in Europe. Now, these are low dose, 5, 10, and 20 milligram THC tablets. So, you know, we're not talking about sending somebody a green card and saying, well, go get as much as you want. Don't call me in the morning. We got doctors that can actually prescribe these drugs and you're not going to get high off of them because it doesn't have enough THC. If my math is correct, 20 milligrams of THC is, I'm going to say 20, yeah, 20%. So if he had flour that was one-to-one ratio of THC, CBD, you'd have about 20% of that THC content. So it's not very much, not enough to get high off of. I want to see the science. Show me the science. All we have right now is saying that it's medicinal is a lot of one-off studies. You know, normal posts their studies all the time, trying to back up theirs. Yesterday, they posted one had 600 people in the study. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's groundbreaking. We have 600 people. That's what you call a pilot study. No serious scientist is going to look at that and say, okay, well, that's great. What they're going to say is, okay, well, that's great. Show me some more. So I went to the RX convention in Atlanta back in 2016 when I I represented smart approaches to marijuana here in Oregon. And the head of the FDA at the time was speaking at that conference and also the head of the DEA. And the head of the FDA said there have been 17 at the time, 17 registered clinical trials with the FDA and all have failed. Since then, there has been one more, which was a study out of Colorado on the effects full plant or PTSD. And again, that failed. So we're not seeing credible science to show that whole plant marijuana is medicinal. So we need that science before I'm going to get on board and say, yep, it's medicine because there's approximately 800 cannabinoids in the plant. And we've only been able to identify about 20% of those. Do you feel cannabis should remain a schedule one controlled substance? Yes. Based on the Controlled Substance Act, a Schedule One drug is a drug that has no accepted medicinal value, and I'm going to put it this way, and or a high potential for abuse. I bring this up because as long as cannabis is a Schedule One controlled substance, the research is tightly controlled by the federal government. OxyContin is only a Schedule Two, and we've seen the abuse. Purdue Pharma has had to pay up billions of dollars for the abuse that Oxy has caused, and it's still listed as a Schedule 2 because it does have some medicinal value in pain management. It also had the luxury of research. If we take cannabis from Schedule 1 and even just bring it down a level to Schedule 2 and open the research up, give the pharmaceutical companies more leeway to go in and do the type of studies that I think you're looking for so we can identify all the cannabinoids that we can figure out where it is helpful from a medical standpoint and maybe use it in a pharmaceutical way rather than a recreational way. And that's why I'm asking. Yeah, well, that's a big misunderstanding. I even talked with people that were drug policy consultants for like Kevin Sabet, who runs Sam, was a drug policy consultant for three presidents from Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And then there's other ones that I talk to on Twitter all the time. That's actually very not true. We can do the research. OxyContin wasn't a Schedule Two before the research. It, you have to have that research to reschedule it. And yeah, it's kind of tight when it is a Schedule One, but you have to, you know, life is full of red tape and loopholes and, you know, this and that. You have to make the necessary steps to get the research done. Like, 
like I said, there's been 18 clinical trials registered with the FDA. So they have to apply through the DEA, register with the FDA, and then they get their product from the NIDA, which gets their marijuana from, at the time, a farm in Mississippi. And they also allowed more facilities to grow marijuana for these studies. What we're seeing on the pushback of that is like, oh, well, it's dirt weed that they're growing. It's blah, 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 blah. Well, no, it's not necessarily dirt weed. It's a controlled grow. You have botanists that are growing it and they're not manipulating it. They're keeping the THC low because that's not the whole point of medicinal science is it's not just start growing THC at people. Some people may say it's a catch-22, but the path to get the research done is there. You just have to take the time, fill out the paperwork, dot your I's, cross your T's, and sign at the bottom. You can get it done. It's been getting done. Oregon State just did a study. California has had a couple studies at their universities. The last clinical trial I told you was out of Colorado. It was split between them and the University of Arizona. So we're getting the studies done. People are going through the red tape. You just have to be patient. You have to do what has to be done. Well, should there be pressure put on the federal government to nudge it since the cannabis industry is growing faster than the research from a public health standpoint? I don't know if we should nudge it, but we should encourage those that want to do the science to do it. The scientists have to do it. You know, we can't just keep putting medical marijuana through based on public opinion because that's not how medical science works. And that's how we're getting all of these medical marijuana initiatives passed is because of public opinion and not the science. If you are serious about researching, if it's medicinal, I encourage you to do it. What would you like to see done with the current cannabis program in Oregon? I would like to go back to what we had before. So back in the 1970s, Dr. Robert DuPont, who is now the head of the National Institute of Health, I've actually talked to him for some reason. He accepted my request for Facebook friends. You know, we talk every now and then. He started pushing for decriminalization. And what was he got coined? Was it the weed doctor? Somewhere, he basically got termed to be a an ally of legalization, but that wasn't his stance. He wanted to decriminalize it so that people weren't going to jail for it because back then it was, I'll admit, a benign drug. You're talking very low potency for THC. You get high for a couple hours, really not a whole lot that we can find scientifically. So once he started doing that, Oregon decriminalized in 1974, and then states started following suit. So people were not getting arrested simply because they possessed an ounce or less of of weed on them. Now, here's where it got sticky. So it's decriminalized. It's not something you can be arrested for primarily, but what we started seeing is police would, they would suspect the person of another crime, and then they would arrest them oh crap, well, they got weed. Here we go. We're going to hook them up. We're going to arrest them secondarily for the, the possession until we can find out how much they have on them to see if it's within the one ounce or whatever. And then while we're doing that, hey, we're going to look at this other crime that we think they were involved in. So that's what they were doing is they were using weed as a secondary source to arrest somebody for another crime that they suspect. Now, if we can get away from that, I think decriminalization would be perfect in a perfect world because you're not getting arrested. You can go get high. You can go smoke weed with a buddy do you know do whatever but we just don't need legalization because legalization leads to commercialization which leads to normalization which leads to more substance abuse let me play devil's advocate if cannabis goes back 
to decriminalized but illegal, unregulated again. It's untaxed. It's untraced. It reverts back to being something that is shadow money, shadow power, shadow influence. It's the criminals that benefit. It doesn't go away. It's just the entire thing goes back to being something that's outside of our control. Regulation is really a misnomer because I'm going to tell you right now, you can't regulate a plant. So whether it's legalized or whether it's decriminalized, there's still going to be that underground element that is going to take advantage. So look at if you look at this, like I said, you can grow four plants at your home per house that's out of view of the public. Now, the Fourth Amendment protects somebody who may want to grow more. And I'm going to tell you why, because of that term, out of the view of public. The Fourth Amendment protects citizens from illegal search and seizures by the police of their person and of their property, unless what the police see is in view of the public. So if you are growing 10 plants in your front yard, the public can see that, the police can see that. They can walk into your yard, take those plants because it is in the view of the public. If it's in your backyard, you could have 100 plants. They can't walk into your backyard and seize those because they didn't see them. Now they need a warrant or your consent. A drug dealer can have as much weed on them as he wants, as long as it's in his pockets or wherever out of view of the public, because now you're looking at the smell of weed is no longer probable cause for a search. So somebody with the Oregon, Idaho, Haida, which is the high intensity drug trafficking area, she sent me something the other day when I told her that I was doing your interview. Josephine County, 641,518 plants were seized in 2021. 600,000 plants, almost 700,000 in one year, 158 firearms and $2.3 million in criminal forfeiture. Yeah, you know, you could throw all the cops that you want at these illegal grows, but good luck finding them all because it's not just Josephine County, it's Deschutes County, it's all these rural counties. And then even you look into Portland, Portland police isn't even looking right now. But I guarantee you got warehouses right now with thousands, tens of thousands of plants in them. Because like I said, the smell of marijuana is not probable cause. So these the Portland cops are like, why? We're not going to get a warrant for it. Because for all we know, they could have the legal amount in there. They could be a registered producer for dispensaries. We don't know that. We don't want to take the time to find that out. So yeah, you could throw all the money you want out there. Like I said, we're still going to have the illegal grows. You bust this one, they're just going to move over here. You bust that one, they're just going to move over here. It's just going to be a revolving door of illegal grows. What do you feel it would take to sway public opinion back towards decriminalization, but not full legalization? The truth. I was tracking, I haven't done it in the last couple of years because I was, I had other stuff that I was doing. I was trying to start a business that ended up failing. But the first three years or so, you know, this waterfall of tax revenue we were getting was equal to less than half of 1% of the state's total gross revenue. It wasn't the cash cow that they were saying it was. It's, uh, you know, when I start looking again, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be the cash cow now, even, what are we, six years later, the state still has a budget shortfall. I checked two years ago, Reynolds, Centennial, Portland Public Schools, Salem-Kaiser, there were about five districts that were looking at multi-million dollar budget shortfalls. So schools weren't getting the money. And it's the same thing in Colorado. The way they did theirs is it's not just an annual 
disbursement of funds, what they have to do is they have to apply for what's called a safer grant. And that can only be used for renovations and construction of new schools. So they really tightened how schools get their money over there. But in Oregon, we're not seeing this cash windfall that we're supposed to be getting from this. And even in Portland, I haven't looked at their revenue, but the first year they reported their tax revenue off of it again was half of 1%. Actually, no, it was one-tenth of 1% of their total gross revenue. So we're just, we're having a lot of false promises from Measure 91 that aren't coming true. Teen use is not going down, like I said. The revenue is not there. You know, I have a whole list of, I don't have it on me right now. I should have been better prepared, but I can go down the list of all their promises and say, not kept, not kept, not kept, not kept. But the public isn't hearing that. You said 47% of the state was against Measure 91. Well, it was another 4% that were polled prior to Election Day that were on the fence. So we had that propaganda that was really hitting the media, like we saw with Measure 110 this past year, just a bunch of propaganda that was hitting the fan and it was being spread out, spread out, spread out. So we had all those people on the fence that were leaning, well, okay, it's just weed. It's just, it's been here for thousands of years. It's just weed. It's no big deal. Well, it's turning out to be a big deal. If the truth got out, to what was going on with legalization or because of legalization, I think we would sway those people that were on the fence plus more because at the time that we legalized, only about 10% of the Oregon population used the drug. So it's probably gone up now because I have seen a lot of people that have been talking. You know, we've had polls. Well, would you use marijuana if it was legal? And we had these polls in Portland and a lot of people said, well, yeah. Of course, they're going to use it because when you legalize it, it's kind of a harm reduction. It takes some of the perception of harm away. So people are going to think it's safe, but it's not safe. It all comes back to normalizing. That's what they need for legalization. What point would you like to leave with our listeners today? 1979, the founder of Normal, Keith Stroop, did an interview. And in that interview, he said, because this goes back to pretty much everything you've asked me, we are going to use the medicine, the medicinal part as a red herring to get what we want. So Keith Stroop has been a big proponent of legalization since the 60s and 70s. And he said, we are going to use medicine to get to them, to get to the public, to get public opinion our way so that we can get what we want, which was legalization. And if you look, 1996, California, 1998, Oregon, and what was it, two other states. And from there, it was just dominoes. So we fast forward, 1996, to 2012, here we go again. We got all these states that have legalized for medicinal purposes. Now we're starting to see those states swing towards recreational. Public opinion is really big right now. And that's where it all started is you got these groups like Normal that lied to the public way back then. And they continued to lie until now when we're starting to see all these initiatives. Again, the recreational legalization is on public opinion. It's not based on science. And we need that scientific approach when it comes to drug policy because science leaves drug policy, not public opinion. If people want to learn more, if people want to educate themselves more, what resources are out there that you would recommend to learn about cannabis for themselves? I really say go for the National Institute of Health. Like I said, Dr. DuPont, he's really big 
into marijuana science. You could also go to Smart Approaches to Marijuana. I don't agree with everything that they put out. Kevin Sabet's a really good guy. We talk on a regular basis and as well as some of the other people there. I do think that they tend to lean towards the propaganda sometimes themselves, but they do put out a lot of good science. In Oregon, Clear Alliance is our top marijuana prevention, drug prevention organization, the one that I told you how to bend. You can go to their website. They have a lot of good information. And then also Portland for Positive Impact. I don't really have a professional website going right now, but I will be hitting social media again really big because I've been dealing with the gun violence this past year and a half. So I really kind of went away from the drug policy part, but I will be going back to the drug policy now that I got some free time and I'll be posting the science, what the science says. Here's what we know. And it's all going to be evidence-based. You can Google search, you can Google scholar what I post and it'll be correct. There will be data to support it. Randy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You know, I really want to get that voice out because in Oregon's media, we don't have that voice. And it's just really bad that, you know, I haven't been interviewed on drug policy since 2018. And it's like Oregon's media doesn't want to hear our side. Randy Philbrick, founder of Portland for Positive Impact and advocate against the legalization of cannabis. Mainstream media. How is the cannabis industry shaped here in Oregon? By state lawmakers and regulatory panels. But the main force that has been at the forefront of helping influence policy is a trade group that represents the cultivators, processors, retailers, entrepreneurs, and allied businesses. It's called the Oregon Cannabis Association. In our next episode, we speak with the OCA about the successes and challenges these businesses face in Oregon and what they're lobbying for to ensure a strong and fair footing for everyone involved in the industry. That's next on Mainstream Media on The Coin Podcast Network.